Our song of invitation, number 924. In the middle of 2016, a particular online website asked for their readers to submit stories of forgiveness, and they published some of those stories. I'm not going to read all of any of those stories, but I want to share with you one, at least in part. It was very lengthy. I tried to cut this down to where it was befitting of this situation while still keeping the the gist of the story. But it was written by a, a woman named Jen, and she wrote this just last June. She said, I was 11 years old when my grandmother began teaching me to hate my own body. My grandma called me fat. I believed her. At the age of 12, I wrapped my body in a girdle to hide my fat and wore it every day for over 10 years. In high school, I'd call my grandma after school for my daily dose of abuse. That was my version of cutting. It was not until college that something clicked and I realized she was abusing me. It was the end of my sophomore year of college, and I had just finished telling a friend what my grandma had told me the night before. Jenny, a boy would be ashamed to take you home and meet his parents. You're not good enough or pretty enough. My friend said, you know that's abuse, right? I did not believe him at first, but I soon would. It would be another eight years before I began therapy and took my first step on the path to forgiveness. My grandma not only taught me to hate my body, She taught me how to be mean to myself, to tear myself down, to blame myself first for whatever was happening in my life. For my birthday one year, she gave me a huge can of Slim Fast. It was expired, and she she had ripped the UPC code out to get the rebate. That was my value, a big old can of expired Slim Fast. She goes on to talk about the beginning process of healing and Near the end of the story that she wrote, she begins to talk about how she began the process of forgiveness, and this is what she wrote. Each year, I choose a word to guide me for the year, rather than making resolutions that would become impossible to keep. In 2011, my word was transformation, and it would truly be the year for it. Shortly after the new year, the house was complete, and I was ready to release my anger. She had built a small house to represent her anger. I cleared the snow and built a small altar of bricks, as I called it, lined with aluminum foil. I perched my anger, as it were, manifested in a paper house on top of the bricks, and then I lit it on fire. I stood and watched it burn. As the house was consumed by flames, my anger was released through its rising smoke. A few months later, summer arrived, and I realized I had forgiven my grandmother. By releasing my anger, she no longer had any control over me. I felt lighter. I was happier than I had ever been in my life. By August, she had become very ill. She was diagnosed with cancer and refused treatment. A few days before she died, I visited her for what would be the last time. My mom and sister and I were standing around her bed when my grandma asked, What's going to happen? Is someone going to come? She was crying and very fearful. And I still do not know why, but she looked to me for an answer. I knew she feared her death, so I reached out, took her hand, and said, Yes, Grandma, everything is going to be fine. That seemed to ease her. I knew that I had truly forgiven her, when in that moment of her pain and fear, I was able to give her comfort. I am beyond grateful for my last encounter with her, and very grateful that we both found healing and peace in our own ways. Why do stories like that 
resonates so much with us. Now, I promise I read about half the story. It's much longer than that, but I didn't want to read a 20-minute story as, as my sermon tonight. We couldn't hear a story like that and just think, well, it's just touching. But I think there's a whole lot more to it. Tonight, our one word for this week is the word forgiveness. It's one of those words that is clearly connected with the Christian faith. It's a word we know. We know the definition to it. But we often struggle with really living it out in our life. Jesus, of course, included the concept in what we typically call the model prayer when he said that we should pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And there's a tension, really, there in our own lives. We want the forgiveness of God. And the more we love God, the more we realize our need for his forgiveness in our life. But granting somebody else forgiveness, that's just not easy. It's way more difficult. Tonight, I want you to turn back to that Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We're going to be reminded of some other passages tonight, but we're going to think about the text that we read from Nehemiah chapter 9 from that one context for the bulk of our time and for our outline tonight. It's found in that scripture we read a few moments ago, Nehemiah 9, beginning in verse 16. And as you're turning there, and I hope you are turning there, let me quickly remind you of the scene to get to the context. Nehemiah, of course, is a Jew. He's away in captivity. But you recall the book begins by, by Nehemiah finding out that the city of Jerusalem, the walls around the city of Jerusalem, are destroyed. The gates are burned. And he weeps over that. But eventually the king grants him, graciously grants him permission to return to the city of Jerusalem to lead the rebuilding of those walls that surrounded the city. And he faces opposition from outsiders, but the people in and around Jerusalem rally around the task. They unite around the task of doing that because those walls represented safety for the city, but also they were a symbolic thing. We, we can do this. And amazingly, when they reunite on the task, they rebuilt the walls and they hung all the gates in just 52 days' time. But still, even with that task done, sometimes we forget that there's more to the book of Nehemiah than just the rebuilding of the wall. Because even though the wall was done, there was still rebuilding that needed to be done as far as the morals of the people. The city is safe, but the morals have declined. And Nehemiah, along with the help, by the way, of Ezra, seek to reinstill a love for the law of God in the people. And they're very effective. In fact, if you're in Nehemiah chapter 9, you'll notice the chapter begins with these words in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. That's verses 1 and 2. It's interesting how often you see this type of thing in the Old Testament where the people were not just content to confess their own sins, but as you so often see, they even sort of rehearsed their history to remind themselves this has been going on for generation after generation where the people continually sinned, continually committed iniquity before God. And it's in that line of thinking that we come to our Scripture reading, which began in verse 16, but the key is found at the end of verse 17. Where the people said to God, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Now we'll talk about the setting of that did not forsake them in just a second. But you see the description of God, ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But what's the event that he's talking about, that they're talking about. When they say, you were ready to forgive and you didn't forsake them. If you keep reading, you see 
It's the golden calf. Centuries earlier than this happened. But even when the people made that golden calf all those generations before and worshipped that golden calf, instead of keeping their trust in God Almighty, even then the Lord would forgive. They had forsaken Him as clearly as they could, and yet He was willing to forgive. From this text in Nehemiah chapter 9, and from a reminder of what the people had done all those generations before under the leadership of Aaron when they worshipped that golden calf, I want us to think about the concept of forgiveness. I want us to think about four things that are as true about forgiveness now as they were then. And as we think through these things, we need to notice that these are, these are always things that are true about God forgiving us, but they also need to be true about when we forgive others. In the first place, we just read the verse. We need to notice that we must be ready to forgive That so clearly comes across in that text that Duane read for us a few moments ago. As the people said in verse 17 that God was a God ready to forgive. The old King James has ready to pardon. You may find it interesting that the whole phrase, ready to forgive, that entire phrase actually comes from just one Hebrew word. And the word literally is just forgiveness. I point that out because it seems as though the people were saying to God that forgiveness was almost just one of his traits. It's just who he was. He was God-forgiveness. That's just who he is. They were bringing it up as a characteristic of the God they served. These people had done something awful. Yes, God was hurt. And yes, God was angry. But God was also ready to forgive or pardon Personally, I think that's one of the reasons we love God so much. We know that we sin. We know that at times we fail Him. But we also know that He stands ready to forgive us. It's not that we want to sin and then be in need of His forgiveness. We understand that we will sin at times. And yet God is just ready to forgive. And we're so grateful when He is. But the question becomes, am I ready to forgive? It's so easy to say, well, we need to be. But it's a whole lot easier to do, isn't it? We're going to talk in just a moment about what precedes forgiveness. But at the heart of God is a willingness to forgive. When someone hurts us and when someone has sinned against us, am I ready to forgive? In Matthew chapter 18, you'll recall that Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That's in verse 21 of that chapter. And Peter was probably thinking that he he had set the bar as high as it could possibly go. Seven times. I mean, how many times would you ever forgive somebody that many times, right? But you remember Jesus' answer. And depending on the translation you have in verse 22 of Matthew 18, he either said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven And, of course, Jesus was not trying to give us some sort of mathematical formula. Instead, he was trying to point out for us that we should always stand ready to forgive. And, again, turn your thoughts to that model prayer. After that prayer was completed in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. All I can add to that really is to ask, don't you want to be forgiven by the Lord when you sin? So then am I ready to forgive others when they have trespassed, when they have crossed the line, if you please, with me? 
we must be like God and standing ready to forgive. In the second place, we can learn from this text that forgiveness must be preceded by confession. Now, this is the clear point of Nehemiah chapter 9, and it's one of the reasons that I took the time a couple of minutes ago to set up the context of our Scripture reading. The people were not asking God to forgive them in some just generic way. They weren't just saying, if we've done something wrong, forgiveness. Instead, these people were hurting because they realized the gravity of their sins, and they confessed them openly, and they confessed them specifically and clearly. And I know there's somewhat of a debate that makes the rounds from time to time that people say that we don't have to forgive until someone asks for forgiveness, as we're putting it here, until someone confesses. And we see that taught in the New Testament. In fact, you have the reference on the screen before you in Luke chapter 17 and verse 3, where Jesus said, pay attention to yourselves. One translation has, take heed unto yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now that verse gives the principle, and it's right. But there's also a balance to be struck between the point we just made a moment ago about forgiveness and this one. Because in the very next verse, Luke chapter 17 and verse 4, you see that same text from Matthew 18 coming forward. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You see, there it is again, being ready to forgive, not just if it's seven times, but if it's seven times in the day. But even in that teaching... Jesus is making it clear the other person is asking for forgiveness. They are saying, I repent. We might say they're confessing the sin. And as we said, that's so clear back in this text in Nehemiah 9. The people are so clearly repenting of their sins, their their national sins, and they're seeking the forgiveness of the Lord. But there's also a principle that's embedded in all this that I know we've talked about before, but I want to mention again because it comes to come across human nature so easily. It's so easy to make Luke chapter 17 and verse 3 mean that, yes, a person has to confess or repent before, the, before I'll forgive, but then also make it come to mean that I'm going to make it as difficult as I can for that person to turn from their sin or to repent of their sin. That's not in the least what Jesus had in mind. Do you remember even the example of our Lord? He was so ready to forgive that from the cross He said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. Now, does that mean that those people that were out there shouting crucify him, and frankly they were enjoying what was going on, does that mean that they were forgiven right at that moment just because Jesus had said that prayer, had made that request? No, because these people had not sought forgiveness. They didn't even care that what they were doing was was wrong, was against anything that was right. But when many of those same people, not all of them, but when many of those same people just... 50 or so, 53 days later, turned to the Lord in Acts chapter 2, and then beyond that, as the church spread in the book of Acts, the Lord was ready to forgive when they confessed their sins, even though they even put His Son on the cross. You see, there's a balance that needs to be struck. But it all starts with our heart. As we seek to be people of forgiveness, but we also do our best to stay humble when we've been hurt or we've been sinned against, when someone asks asks forgiveness, we must be ready to forgive. But confession or repentance, whichever word you choose is fine, precedes it. Number three, we also learn from this text that forgiveness means that the slate is wiped clean. I love how the people of this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9 talk about how God did not forsake their ancestors when they built that golden calf and worshipped it. You see it twice 
At the end of verse 17, they said that God did not forsake them. And then later down in verse 19, they said it again. They said to God, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. That's just two phrases in this section that show what forgiveness really means. The slate is wiped clean. Now, that brings up the old question. Should we forgive and forget? Well, the answer to that question is we should forgive and forget. But we're human. We're going to remember Our minds will not let us literally forget that we've been hurt or that a sin has been done to us, even if forgiveness has been granted. We can't forget that that ever happened. In Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 25, we're told about God that He remembers our sins and our iniquities no more. In my Wednesday night Bible class, we recently spent a whole, what, 17 weeks or something talking about forgiveness. It took forever. They're probably thinking, couldn't you just preach this sermon and hadn't done it one night instead of 17 weeks? But we spent a long time discussing this concept about how, how does God forget? Because God knows everything. Well, God doesn't literally forget. But what happens is God does not choose to bring it up again. When God forgave the people of their sin at the, uh, of the golden calf, He did not then bring that pillar of fire to lead them by night and that pillar of cloud to lead them in the daytime and say, Now, you remember what you did, but I'm going to put this up here anyway. And the moment you turn, it's going that's just not what happened. The slate was wiped clean. He provided those blessings and countless others out of His grace because the relationship had been restored. And you may have heard the phrase before that we need to bury the hatchet And the idea is that there's something that's hurting in a relationship, so we decide to to put it away. It's as if we've buried that in the ground. But what's tragic is that too often we bury the hatchet, but we keep the handle sticking out of the ground because it gives us a chance to pull it back out and use it again. That's not forgiveness in the least. One of the traits of love found in 1 Corinthians 13, the New International Version includes in verse 4, that love keeps no record of wrongdoing. There's actually one translation, or one paraphrase, I should say, that actually translates that as, there is no scoreboard with love. When I say I forgive, the, sl- the slate is wiped clean. That issue is not to be brought up again as a way to damage or to hurt or to just hold it over someone because it's gone. But in the fourth place, and on the other side of that very same coin, we also need to know that forgiveness does not mean that there is a lack of consequences. We know that because sins have consequences, even if the sins are forgiven. And there's a couple of very subtle things found in this text that hint at that even here in Nehemiah chapter 9. First, look down beginning of verse 20. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. Now, remember, this is talking about way back, centuries before, when the golden calf had been built but then destroyed. But God gave them His good spirit to instruct them. What was part of that instruction? You shall not make any carved or graven images. It's not that God was holding the sin over their head. He was instructing them. But there's an even stronger reminder of the fact that sins have consequences in that this chapter even exists in the Bible. Here we are centuries after the golden calf. And the people of Nehemiah's day, they're not 
in the wrong because their ancestors had built the golden calf. That was their doing all those generations ago, generations and generations had come and gone. And yet here the people were, all this time later, still remembering the goodness of God, yes, but also still remembering the sins of their ancestors. There was still a guilt and still a memory of this sin they carried all this time later. Sin can be forgiven, thankfully. But that does not mean that all the consequences of sin just immediately go away. Sometimes it is literally impossible to take away the consequences. Someone who drives drunk or drives high and they maim or they even kill someone, they can be forgiven of that, most certainly. But we cannot reverse the consequences. We can't bring someone back to life or automatically heal someone just because that person has been forgiven. They may still face a prison sentence, a full prison sentence because of that. A student who cheats on a test, they can be forgiven of that, but the grade may very well remain a zero or the incident may remain on some kind of record. The consequence is still there. It's still real. It's still lasting. Someone who gossips may be granted forgiveness and they need to seek forgiveness and they can be given forgiveness, but that tale has been told and that tale has been retold enough that it's virtually impossible to put all the pieces back together to repair someone's reputation or really even for that one who's been forgiven of the sin to regain his or her reputation. Even what we sometimes call sins of omission, those things we're supposed to do that we don't do, even those have consequences that are long-ranging. If we realize, you know what, as a Christian, I'm supposed to be teaching others the gospel and I haven't been doing that, we, we can be forgiven of that and press forward and try to teach and try to encourage, but we can't make up for the lost time. We can't automatically get all those days or weeks or months or years back. We weren't doing those sorts of things. It's not that we hold things over someone else. But we must realize that sin has consequences, some of which are impossible to move past, especially in the short term. Forgiveness cannot take all the consequences away, but forgiveness can be a start to making things as right as they can be. You know, it would be very easy for me to ask you who you need to forgive. I could start listing possible relationships, and you could start thinking, mind, yes, it's this person or that person or this relationship or that relationship. And it's, when that person seeks forgiveness, I'd be ready to forgive, but, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I want to remind you of something else. And that, if, that is, if you are a Christian, you serve a God who has already shown the pa- perfect path of forgiveness. He has already shown the perfect heart of forgiveness. He has shown that there's a high price to be paid. But he's also already shown how beautiful forgiveness is. Consider this. That story we began with, I promise it wasn't fun to read the whole thing. It wasn't fun even to read the excerpt I mentioned. But at the end, it was heartwarming. Because I think we all put ourselves in those shoes at least a little bit. And we realize how difficult that would have been over this, these many, many years to begin the process of forgiveness and reconciliation for Jen and her grandmother. But did you also notice that she said when she forgave, there was a feeling of freedom? That's why through the PowerPoint you saw the chain with the bird flying off the end. That's why that was there. When God forgives us, we are free from the worst possible situation. And that is being lost eternally. And when God forgives, and when we forgive others, whether that person feels free or not, we are free. 
We've, we've done our best. Our soul is released from bitterness. Our hearts are being rebuilt to love more deeply again. And more than anything, we are more like our Heavenly Father. We are never more like our Heavenly Father than when we truly forgive. And so Paul would tell all Christians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4 and verse 32. Forgiveness is not easy when properly understood. But we are never more like God than when we stand ready to forgive. And we extend that forgiveness. We wipe the slate clean. And we help the other person work through those consequences that may still be there. Have you ever thought about the fact that when a person becomes a Christian... We see them go down into the waters of baptism. The Bible tells us over and over again, that's what one must do in order to find salvation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. But that picture sometimes gets, gets lost. That when that person goes down into the water and then comes up out of the water, it's not just a different person. Paul would write, it's a new creation, a new creature. Yes, a death has taken place, but it's a death to sin because God forgives. God has wiped that slate clean. There may still be consequences for some things that person has done, but God will never again bring those sins up to hold over that person's life. And if that person walks faithfully, I don't know everything about Judgment Day. I don't know everything it's going to look like. But I love to get the picture in my mind of standing before the judgment seat of Christ and not hearing him say, oh, you were perfect, or oh, I'm impressed. No, nothing like that. You know what I want to hear Jesus say? You know what I want the book of life to say where my name is found? Forgiven. That's what, I want, that's what I want to say. He is forgiven. Tonight, is there someone who needs to be forgiven? Or is there someone tonight who, as a Christian, has been struggling to forgive? And it's standing between you and another person, and that bitterness, anger, difficulty is standing between you and God. Let's get it right. We were forgiven so that we can forgive. Tonight, do you need to be forgiven? If so, will you come? Will we stand and sing to encourage?